This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Nice tune to walk us into a big story about Blackstone. Plus, I kind of feel like uh, Heather Pearlberg. She's a Rolling Stones kind of uh, kind of gal. Totally, of course. She I am. joins us on the phone from our ninety-nine-one studio in DC. Hey, Hev, how's it going? Great. How are you guys? So big deal in the world of uh, of Blackstone, and it's got the relatively recently ascended President John Gray's fingerprints all over it. Uh, big real estate, but kind of looking around the corner. Tell us about it. Sure. I mean, you're right. This is a a very typical Blackstone deal in some ways because they don't do anything small. If you look at Hilton Hotels, the whole single family rental trade, they want large scale thematic stuff. And, and this is that. Amazon is the future, right? So here they are with a bajillion warehouses. Actually, 1300 is my number for bajillion. Right. Um, <laughs> And, you know, size, and sc- <laughs> size and scope here at Bloomberg, uh, Heather. Size and scope. We're very exact. Yeah. So uh, nobody really cares about warehouses unless they're stuffed with marijuana or Amazon packages. Or both. Right. And so uh, you, you mentioned the scale piece of this, this, which I think is really important. So is this one of those sort of conviction plays, as Blackstone calls them, where they'll continue to build this out? Or is this a one-shot deal? What's your sense? I think they're going to keep going. I mean, they like they don't do anything small, we already said, and this does seem to go with the broader e-commerce theme. They're doubling, almost doubling their footprint with one deal. So mm-hmm. it seems like this is just uh, one of several we'll see. I don't know that they'd be this big, but they're going to keep coming. Can I just say, I love this. I remember a few years ago being at a real estate event out on the West Coast, and people were talking about their real estate plays, and these are global plays, and it's all about warehousing, because this is how people are buying and consuming stuff. And so it's almost like a a no-brainer to some extent, right? Because this is the future. Absolutely. It seems like a lot of this is in big cities where people are doing e-commerce the most. Mm-hmm. But they're, you know, part of what Blackstone did this, that's also sort of strategic is they took a part of this and put it into their real estate investment trust. And that's sort of the more income producing Chicago, Dallas, Central Florida kind of neighborhoods. And they put the San Francisco, L.A., Seattle properties in their big global real estate fund. Is there anything interesting about the timing of it, Heather? And I do wonder about, Jason, I talk a lot about the money that's around there, and I do feel like we're starting to see some movement in terms of you know, selling assets or taking them public in order to let the investors, you know, private equity investors in these funds realize some kind of return or gains here. So I do wonder about the timing of this, either on that front or just generally about real estate. 
Well, it does seem like uh, from what had been reported, the GLP was considering going public. But when I talk to private equity firms these days, they almost think of themselves as the new IPO, right? Yeah. Like firms that don't want to go public can just go to a private equity firm, get funding, you know, be on their way without having to go through that whole process of being public and the IPO market and the roadshow. It's an alternative to that. And so uh, tell us about the team, uh, if you can, that's sort of taken over for John Gray. He's got a pair of people running that business. They've got a lot of capital at at their disposal. Presumably this tells, and obviously John Gray's not gone anywhere. He's just running, you know, helping run the whole firm. But what does this uh, tell us about sort of the strategy going forward here? Kathleen and Ken. Uh, Kathleen and Ken took over for John. It seems like they are following his lead. I would not say this is kind of a a breakout of Mm -hmm. the mold. Uh, And, you know, it would be sort of hard to take a different direction when you have funds that are producing 16% a year. And John Gray was obviously very smart in most of what he did. So I wouldn't expect to see them go a a different direction. Um, But it seems like this is something John Gray would say was the right direction. And what about from a competitive perspective, because obviously the KKRs, the Carlisles, the Apollos of the world, they're all looking at what Blackstone has done in real estate, making some of their own moves as well. And then some of the other uh, real estate players, Brookfield jumps to mind. Obviously, they're one of the most active players and they have a scale now with the Oak Tree uh, synergies, as they say. Uh, what's the competitive landscape here? I think there will be a lot of competition around any deal. There's just so much money. There's so much money on the sidelines. And even in this deal alone, it was said that Brookfield was bidding on it. Other folks were bidding on it. Uh, It doesn't seem like there's going to be a lot that happens without multiple players Right. right there. So. The but elusive it, so-called proprietary okay. deal may not be uh, as as available. No, but then Blackstone does have its kind of history as being one of the largest real estate and most successful real estate players that they have that edge. Right, and they just seem like they're looking to do even more and more in this uh, space. Absolutely. All right, cool stuff. Thanks. Heather Pearlberg, private equity reporter for Bloomberg. Uh, Heather, I think, will be up in New York tomorrow, as will we, because John Gray, the aforementioned yes. John Gray, the president of Blackstone and the architect, pun intended, of a lot of their real estate strategy, he's going to be joining me at the Bloomberg Invest Conference. We'll have that Great. interview, exclusive interview, right here during this show, actually, tomorrow afternoon, taking place here at Bloomberg headquarters. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about his investing background. This is one of our uh, big flagship events, as I you love, know. I love talking to these guys, right? Because they do have so much money to invest, and you do wonder about kind of what's top of the mind right now. I do wonder what he's going to have to say about kind of the U.S.-China trade right. spat and what that might mean longer term in terms of impact on companies, supply chains, and really kind of this technology divide that it seems like, or technology cold war that we seem headed for. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, let's get to one of the big stories of the day, and this has to do with Google Parent, Alphabet, and Facebook. Both of them have tumbled as the companies appear set to undergo U.S. antitrust probes after the U.S. Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission agreed to split up oversight of the technology giants. Jennifer Ree is Senior Litigation Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, right here in New York City. Good to have you back with us. Thank you. So tell us what's going on, and what does it mean when they kind of split up – 
the problems or the oversight? Sure thing. It looks like from reports that the FTC and Department of Justice got together and said, okay, maybe it's time. You know, these companies are big. They have dominance. We're getting complaints. And maybe it's time to investigate. And because those two enforcement agencies have concurrent jurisdiction uh, to enforce antitrust laws, this is the usual procedure for them. If one would like to open an investigation, they need clearance from the other. They basically cooperate. They talk and say, who's going to take what? And what it looks like they did here is said, okay, there are four big ones. DOJ, you take two. FTC, you take two. And if we deem an investigation is necessary, then we now have clearance to go forward. So take us right to the heart of this. I mean, what is the biggest concern generally across the four and then the specific concerns, if you can get into that? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, you know, you've talked about these stocks tumbling, and it's interesting to me because we really aren't going to know outcome or impact, if any, for years. These investigations. Which is what we yes. talked about at the beginning that everybody's right. getting kind of freaked out, but we exactly. think about the antitrust breakup of telecom took a long time. You know, and all of this takes a long time, and even outcome, it's very difficult to say what might happen because even if these agencies, after a years long investigation, determines there has been something illegal going on, we need a remedy, we need to do something, they have to go to court. Mm-hmm. And they these companies can, can fight this in court for years, you know, with appeals and everything else. Jennifer, you understand the legalese here. And I just do wonder, is this akin to the breakup of telecom? Is there something within our business history that we can kind of draw to or look at to kind of say, okay, mm-hmm. this is similar? Or U.S. Steel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. L- listen. There is no doubt that the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice have it in their ability to seek as a remedy for illegal conduct a breakup of, of a company. We've seen it done before. They, the DOJ tried to do that with Microsoft, but they weren't able to because a judge essentially at the end of the day after appeals didn't agree that that was the appropriate remedy. They can do that, but it takes a lot. You know, in our antitrust history, this has only been done a few times, and it is a drastic remedy, and it needs a judge order. It's not something the DOJ and FTC can just go ahead and do. And so when you think of this in sort of the timeline of the past couple of years, you know, we've seen these guys sort of called up to Capitol Hill, Mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg sort of most notably, you know, sitting there and taking questions from lawmakers, lawmakers who I think it's fair to say maybe don't fully understand uh, the business. There's been a lot of uh, (laughs) splaining that has to happen from the from the tech companies. So, I mean, take it of a piece What's the most realistic uh, outcome here and who's really going to drive it? Honestly, I think the most realistic outcome are years-long investigation, more than one, possibly even just a settlement where these companies agree to change some conduct, maybe similar conduct changes as they've made in Europe Mm. in response to investigations there. And I hate to say it, but at the end of the day, probably having a minimal impact. Well, and what's interesting is I always think in the past, right, antitrust was concerns about either, you know, consumers weren't maybe getting the best price or Mm -hmm. there's a great access. It's different, though. It's about privacy. It's about data control. I mean, this is what we're looking at, correct? Or have we changed the terms of what we're looking for or looking at in terms of antitrust concerns? I think that remains to be seen. I mean, today, privacy is not an antitrust concern. That needs to be handled separately via separate, le- different kinds yeah. of statutes and legislation. It used to be the consumer welfare right. standard, right? Well, it still is the consumer okay. welfare standard, and that's the thing. Our courts go by past precedent. So to change that standard and to move it into something different, let's say think of data collection as the price rather than money being the price, which you might need to do here, this is going to take a really long time. It has to evolve and it, it because this is common law. Law, essentially. It's defined by the courts. Once once an investigation starts or something, I mean, let's say it, it drags over to another administration, mm-hmm. can it change in terms of 
a different administration saying we'll back off the investigation? Or once it starts, once it leaves the station, does it have to be kind of followed through? I don't think another administration would do that because it would just look blatantly political. I think once this gets going and they start an investigation and collecting in, in evidence, they'll go to where that leads no matter what it is, no matter what the uh, administration is. Jennifer Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. I always learn something. <laughs> always. This is really, really good and very helpful and useful as we go forward because clearly, as we've seen in the trade today, investors very concerned about it and Clearly, and we know from uh, talking to you, Jennifer, that they're calling you to uh, ask for advice in terms of just making sense of all this. And I think parsing all these issues is really Mm -hmm. important. Everywhere is war. It's a war. So with the U.S.-China trade showing no signs of easing, a potential G20 meeting among the nation's leaders really looms as a key chance for detente, uh, and investors certainly watching it closely. In the meantime, a subtle or perhaps not-so-subtle message regarding China's trade war strategy was revealed. Writing about it are Andy Brown. He's Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So much to talk about because it continues to give the China-U.S. trade spat, uh, if you will. Tell us, though, about this story you wrote about that tells us a little bit about the Chinese strategy and all of this. Okay, so, so, so this was an interesting backstory to this much-hyped debate between Liu Xin, who's a Chinese state TV anchor, and Trish Reagan from Fox. And um, so Liu Xin was asked after this debate why she had worn these very beautiful jade earrings and a jade pendant necklace. And she uh, quoted an ancient Chinese saying, which is translates roughly as better broken jade or smashed jade uh, than intact tile. And, and the meaning is very clear to, to any Chinese person, which is basically, you know, that you would rather do without a, an incredibly valuable thing uh, than accept an inferior, something inferior. Mm-hmm. And this is very much in line with what China is saying about its position on the trade war, that they want a trade deal, the door to talks is still open, but they're not going to take it at any cost, and they're certainly not going to negotiate on their knees. Well, and Andy, what, what, one of the things I love about talking to you is you know this so well. You know all these nuances, and, and I loved it when you put this story out about the, the jade. One of the things that it strikes me from a simplistic perspective is the Chinese are seeing this as a long game. I mean, they, they are just in it to win it, but with a much, much longer horizon than it feels like the Trump administration is. Is that fair? Yes, it is to an extent, um, but uh, and there is a big caveat yeah. here that if China was really playing the long game, I think it might have taken a very different tack uh, towards foreign businesses in China and particularly towards technology companies. In fact, it's gone through, made a series of what I think could be, in retrospect, we'll see as being re- really profound and potentially disastrous miscalculations, firstly about the U.S. political system and where it's going. But secondly, the way that it's handled foreign technology in China. Uh, it, it always, over the weekend, we had this trade white paper, which basically mm-hmm. accused America of coercion, intimidation, blackmail, bullying, and all the rest of it, without any introspection, without any questioning or acknowledgement of the role that China has played. Because 
could potentially China kind of shut the door on foreign technology companies wanting to do anything in China or anything with Chinese companies? Sure. So it, it, it's outrage that America should suggest that China has been stealing uh, intellectual property. Well, tell that to Google. In 2010, right. it was one of dozens of U.S. companies whose servers were invaded by Chinese hackers. Google was so spooked at that point that it took its business out of China, took its search engine down to Hong Kong. What then followed was a whole series of national security laws which essentially were intended to squeeze foreign companies, IBM, Microsoft, Intel, Cisco Systems, you know, all the leading tech companies out of so-called critical infrastructure in China, including banking networks. So you had a whole series of very aggressive moves. And then, of course, finally, this Made in China 2025 industrial policy, which basically says all of the all of the uh, industries of the future, 10 pillar industries accounting for something like 40% of Chinese value-added manufacturing is going to be reserved for Chinese companies, thus threatening every single American technology company operating in the country. So maybe less tech, but there's a little bit of tech in there. Uh, FedEx. Like, what, what an amazing uh, move, right, yeah. by the Chinese. Feels like a bit of a counter-strike, right? It is. Um, you know, this is, this, is, this is potentially very serious, and FedEx apparently has apologized. Um, China is a, in Guangzhou, a, a, a Baiyun Airport, White Cloud Airport, is a big logistics base for... And for remind us what region. happened. I sort of jumped into it without explaining yeah, it. So, remind us what happened. Uh, so the details of this are pretty murky. Uh, what Reuters has reported is that there were several packages from mm -hmm. Japan addressed to Huawei in China, and these packages somehow got diverted to the U.S. What happened to them in the U.S. is not clear, but now China has said it's going to come up with a list of so-called unreliable entities. And these are companies that have been complicit in uh, Trump's uh, blockade of technology to China. And so we're, uh, they're going to be targeting not just, by the way, not just companies, but individuals who they s believe uh, have been uh, behaving in unreasonable ways towards China. Now, the first name in, in association with that that's come up has been FedEx. Huh. I, it's fascinating. I do wonder... You know, Andy, watching this, do you anticipate that this is all real? How much of it is jockeying ahead of G20? Yeah, the I mean, the general approach that the Chinese have taken is um, uh, they've been very they've been quite measured. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see um, if the other shoe is going to drop in terms of this uh, unreliable entities list. But so far. Uh, it, it's been it's been very measured, and there's a reason for this. I mean, China does not want a stampede for the for, for the doors. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want foreign uh, direct investment to dry up. If you look at the recent survey of American Chamber of Commerce in China companies, one third have said that they're either revising or canceling or delaying or canceling their investment decisions, and about you know uh, 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 about a quarter uh, are pulling their supply chains uh, out of China. We had two conversations: one with the CEO of UPS and one with the CEO of Cisco. And both of them, we talked about supply chains and also just technology waves, especially with Cisco, that those waves tend to go for 5, 10, 
15 years or longer. Mm. And that, you know, once those supply chains are made up, you know, it's very easy for a company like Huawei to kind of be cut out of that global supply chain. Right. So China does not want to take precipitous action that, I mean, already foreign companies are diversifying and it just, it certainly doesn't want to rush out uh, out of the door by these tech companies. Uh, It's concerned about the impact, not just on on their economy, which is already looking pretty soft, but uh, but on uh, uh, unemployment and social stability. Andy Brown, what a treat to catch up with you. As always, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. His new column, China's Trade War Strategy, really breaks down so nicely some of the big things you need to be looking for because it's a fast-moving story from jade earrings to FedEx. There's a lot to discuss. Well, and you think about everything we do, I feel like, uh, has to, it centers around trade. We heard from uh, Jim Bullard, right, of the Fed, and, and talking about maybe we do need an interest rate cut to counter some of the economic weakness caused by the U.S.-China trade spat. So, you know, you do wonder everything at this point is revolving around these trade conversations. I do think G20, though, we'll see whether or not That's they gonna can be the figure next something key. out. It certainly feels and like... And saving face for both sides, right? That's a big part of this as well. Totally. And we'll obviously hear what the president says on this trip to the U.K. I'm sure he'll have some commentary around China as well. Here comes the Fact. It is the wettest, wildest planting season that U.S. farmers can remember. Here with more on that and the implications and the problems that may be causing. Brian Sullivan, energy and commodities reporter at Bloomberg News. He is in our Bloomberg 1061 studio in Boston. Also with us, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio in New York. When it comes to weather, you know, Brian, we always come to you. Tell us a little bit about how bad it's been for farmers. How much rain are we talking about? What what What's it uh, what kind of problems it's caused? Well, it's been terrible, and it goes back to last year. It isn't even uh, this planting season alone. Um, this started last year at this time. It's been the wettest um, period from May of 2018 to April of 2019 in the United States. Uh, planting is way behind uh, for corn, for soybeans, for all kinds of crops. Uh, in addition, it's kind of ruining things down in for cotton in Texas. And the only part of the country that has been dry is uh, Georgia, South Carolina, and Alabama, and that's ruining cotton there because it's too dry. So it's just been um, a wild, wild season. And so, so, Joel, come on in here because obviously this is a story in part about agriculture, but you can't talk about – ag without talking about tariffs and, and sort of the global market and the global economy, right? That was the, that was the reason I wanted to uh, spend a second to talk to Brian about this, because really of all the people in the world right now who are really getting a short stick, I think it's U.S. farmers. They, they're, they've got the trade war, which um, President Trump has waged now for over a year, with the soybeans being sort of the first victim of it. And now it's you know truly something basically beyond their control with the weather and when you look at these photos it really shows just like how wet it is and that has these long-term implications because it's going to affect the yield of the crops which is going to affect commodity markets and it's going to affect the livelihood so i'm just really fascinated by this story and, and it's also one of those things that speaks to how much attention we really give to the coast and not the middle of the country I think, and and that's why I, went, I know I, I watched closely all Brian's stories, and this one especially jumped out at me because there's no relief coming anytime soon. 
And so, so Brian, as you talk to folks, and obviously, as we've all alluded to, you keep a very close eye uh, on the weather. Is there any relief coming? And is there enough, for lack of a better term, sort of remediation or, or things happening on the back end of all of this to give people any sort of confidence that it's going to get better? Um, for corn, there really isn't any kind of relief at all. There were, there were deadlines set by both nature and by insurance um, that have come and gone for the most part uh, in most corn fields. You, you had to have the corn in the ground by the end of May, the beginning of June, uh, and this just isn't happening because they can't get into the field. So for those folks, for corn this year, it's probably too late. Uh, it is drying out a little bit in the northern Great Plains and up in Minnesota as such, so we can get some soybeans in there. But the forecast for the next week, um, it's going to be tremendously uh, rainy across the um, Ohio Valley and the lower Midwest and, and eastern Great Plains. So it's, it's, uh, there's just nothing there. I'm going to put this story out on Twitter because you're right, Joel. Those photos uh, in Iowa, they're just staggering. And you just see the amount of water that these farmers are dealing with. And you're throwing some tornadoes. You know, it's, like, it's just like it's what? really like I feel like they're, they're going through something right now that we can't underestimate what the economic implications of this are going to look like because it's unrelenting and you can't even get a crop to grow. No, and one of the more terrible things that happened is earlier this year there was a a bomb cyclone just at the end of winter and that caused some tremendous flooding in Nebraska and Iowa and that actually wiped out crop that was harvested last fall and was stored and all those silos were knocked down and all that, that, uh, it's just gone. So, So, Brian, how are... When you talk to farmers and they're dealing with, you know, a trade war on one side and this weather on the other side, like, what what are you taking away from them? Um, there's, you know, there's a certain amount of um, shrugging of the shoulders that, you know, this is the, the business we're in and uh, life is hard and you can lose a crop so many different ways. And this year we're, we're seeing one of the ways you can do it. Um, there was some optimism earlier in the season where they thought, well, okay, we're going to get a few dry periods and we'll get get the crop in the ground so we're not that worried about it but now i think there's a a realization setting in that that this year is going to be a wash and what does it mean for things like fertilizer companies i mean i just think about there's a supply chain going a lot of different directions i mean there's implications all along that right Oh, definitely. Um, not only that, but uh, one of our colleagues wrote a story today that diesel was down because the demand for diesel across the Midwest is down because the tractors aren't in the fields, you know, things like that. This is, this is just going to resonate all the way through when, and you a think whole about bunch the, of different The trucks yeah. when the time comes, right? It's exactly. like everything. Yeah, exactly. no, it's wide-ranging for sure. I mean, this came up in the conversation that we had with the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, uh, mm-hmm. last week. You can catch that on our podcast. There you go. A little plug there. All right, Brian Sullivan, energy and commodities reporter for Bloomberg. He's in our 1061 studio up in Boston. It's all a busy time of year for him, but we're getting now into hurricane season. And Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, here with us in New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Hank Smith. He is the co-chief investment officer 
Haverford Trust, joining us on the phone from Radnor, PA. So, Hank, I got to ask you, you know, we're, we're looking at this market today. I think we came into the week not exactly sure what was going to drive the trade other than trade. Obviously, the tech names just taking a beating right now. The Nasdaq really leading the way down in terms of the major markets. So what should we be most worried about? Happy Monday. <laughs> and happy Monday and a good afternoon to you, Jason. Um, yeah, and it, look, the trade uh, backdrop has been with us now for five weeks. And and the specter of regulation on the tech industry is coming uh, for, you know, front and center. Uh, clearly weighing on the market. Uh, but I think longer term uh, or intermediate term, it, it's really uh, getting a resolution to the trade and tariff issues. And if you want to take the bullish point of view, um, we will come, the Trump administration will come to resolutions on trade agreements that will include lowering tariffs, but it probably won't happen until later this fall, maybe late fall, which sets up very well for the politics of it, that being 2020, being an election year. So that is the bullish point of view, that uh, the trade issue gets settled, and the end result is a pickup in CEO confidence resulting in a pickup in business investment, capital spending, and you get a, a kind of a, an acceleration of GDP growth going into uh, an election year 2020. That's a really interesting thought. I have to say I hadn't thought about it in exactly those terms, but sort of timing it in a way that it's of greatest political benefit to the president and to the GOP, it potentially could happen. It also could potentially backfire. How much do you see the Democrats, just staying with the political uh, aspect of this, sort of playing on this uh, trade piece for now? And do you expect that to ratchet up? Well, uh, the Democrats uh, certainly aren't uh, interested in passing any type of legislation or doing anything that is going to help this administration. They are truly playing the role of the resistor, the resistance, if you will. But trade and tariffs are something that's in the president's uh, control. And so, look, the ultimate goal, and the the president has stated this not recently, but uh, a year ago, the ultimate goal is a world with low to no tariffs. His way of getting there is a bit unconventional, just like his entire presidency is a bit unconventional. But if he wants to be a two-term president, he has got to come to trade agreements that lower tariffs, and uh, that will, uh, given the tax reform that was passed, that will have a boost uh, to uh, GDP for sure. The problem is we're going to have a choppy market throughout the summer into the early fall. We'll have a couple soft quarters of, of GDP print, uh, but it does set up for an acceleration if we are correct in that analysis. So does that mean you're already placing bets in terms of you know, expectations that the more bullish scenario will play out and that there will be sooner rather than later some kind of resolution for U.S.-China trade? Great point, Carol, because the other side of that is the administration digs its heels, and that's the less-than-bullish scenario, and this drags into 2020. Um, 
And so just like at the end of 2018, we did not make portfolio adjustments because we thought uh, the risks of a recession were very low and that um, the sell-off in the fourth quarter, and particularly in in December, was the market expressing fear of policy mistakes. Uh, The first one was taken off the table with the Federal Reserve uh, basically uh, indicating there would be no more rate hikes for the rest of uh, 2019. And the second policy mistake is trade. And we think that will uh, rectify itself in the positive form. So we're keeping our equity portfolios fully invested, our balanced portfolios. Uh, We have maintained an overweighting to equities, uh, which means we're kind of suffering through this uh, choppy period, but you know we're still up 11, 12 percent year to date. So it's still been a good year by any historic measurement. And so when you see something like the Mexico tariffs that came on, or were at least threatened, I should say, toward the end of last week, does that give you pause around a positive resolution anytime soon? Well, it, it's certainly a disappointment, and, and uh, the market clearly uh, reflected that yeah. with the uh, sell-off late uh, this week and into uh, this week. And, you know, there's talk about maybe tariffs on India, Australia, right. um, et cetera. Um, and, again, if you believe this president wants to be a two-term president, mm. uh, this will resolve itself before the end of this year, most likely in in the late fall. All right. So be more specific then potentially. Hank, just got about 30 seconds left here, 40 seconds left here. So where you should maybe be thinking about positioning yourself ahead of that expectation? Well, the easiest thing to do right now is to get defensive, either raise cash or uh, adjust the portfolio in more defensive sectors such as healthcare staples. But the opportunity is where we've seen some big sell-offs uh, in industrials. Names like FedEx have sold off quite uh, quite dramatically, as an example. Mm-hmm. And so if you have the viewpoint we do incrementally, I think you have to take advantage of those areas that have experienced pain uh, and, and add to those areas. And, and uh, that is what we're discussing right now internally. Hank Smith, thank you so much. Hank is co-chief investment officer down at Haverford Trust on the phone with us from Radnor, PA. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.